The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's check in with an expert here, Brent Schutte, Chief Investment Strategist for Northwestern Mutual Wealth. They have about $247 billion under management, so they got a couple shekels in the game here. Brett, when you see a number like that this morning, you know, an exceptional miss, what did you make of that this morning? Well, I think it's going to be a blip that's largely forgotten in a few weeks. I mean, everything else is pointing up. I mean, even on the labor force, you have strong labor front, you have strong data in other places. And the economic backdrop is incredibly strong. And so you're going to have more hiring in the coming months. You know, I, I think there could be some seasonal adjustments in here. So the unadjusted number, not to confuse your audience, is actually 1 million. So data is seasonally adjusted. And when you have all the back and forth that you've had over the past few, uh, past year or something, that could actually cause the seasonal adjustments to make this look a little bit different. The other thing is that you have some level of unemployment benefits keeping people back and possibly COVID fears. But I think you're going to get stronger numbers in the future, and, and that's not going to change. And so I think the market will look past it like it is today and continue to push higher because, as you mentioned, you're likely to have monetary policy stay strong. And I know you mentioned President Biden coming on talking about fiscal policy. This only makes that more likely that it actually goes through. Uh, and so all in all, um, I would largely shrug it off if I were an investor. Yeah, he's. Uh, we're expecting many moments. So if we cut you off, we cut you short. Then just know that you're being bigfooted by the president of the United <laughs> States. It's not in any way. He, he might be just a bit more important. So that's, that's okay <laughs> by me. Well, we're not sure. You know, I got to say, you you went to um, Illinois, right? And then the University of Chicago yeah. Booth School for your MBA with high honors. I, I want to point out. There you go. Um, but. I'll just say quickly, I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent, but um, here in Germany, we would pronounce your name Schutte, which means archer or shooter, just so you're aware. <laughs> I did so, not know that. Yeah, you're a target hitter, you know, um, a <laughs> shot caller, as we, as we might say. Um, what do you think about the trajectory right now of the economy? I've talked to so many European economists here who look at the U.S. Um, and look at the global economy and say, Man, you know, we're, we're peaking right now, even in terms of corporate earnings, like this quarter, next quarter is going to be the peak. And that doesn't mean we're not seeing growth ahead, but it's just not going to be as strong as it has been this quarter. Yeah, I think that's a big debate. And I think we still have a few more strong quarters than what you just mentioned. I'm not for sure when the peak comes, but you have a strong tailwind behind you. You have $2.2 trillion in excess consumer savings. You have monetary policy designed to continue pushing the economy and the market power as well as fiscal policy. Uh, and so I, I do think you are in a cyclical upswing. Uh, and you mentioned Germany. I, I think that's going to be a global upswing. And so one of the areas that's been left behind just a bit, they actually had negative GDP in the first quarter, was the Eurozone. Um, you're going to be adding Germany uh, and the Eurozone to the strong commentary in the coming future because of the vaccinations catching up. And so I think you have plenty of time left in the economic cycle. I think the question is, is it too strong? And that's where I'm telling investors that they need to hedge that risk the first time in, what, 15 or 20 years? 
And so you need to own things like commodities. You need to own things like tips um, as a just-in-case, because I think the only thing that would throw this off is if inflation rises too high and becomes more permanent. Now, I don't think we're there yet, but I think that's going to be the big question over the coming quarters. And we have investors that haven't had to do this for 20 years. They've been trained to hedge downside risk. I think you need to hedge upside risk. And one of the reasons why the market probably likes what happened today, as you mentioned, uh, is because this could possibly be a little bit of slowing in demand, which will allow the supply side to catch up. Um, and so perhaps that's the silver lining in today's uh, numbers. All right, Brent. So given that backdrop, what are some of the sectors that you think are going to perform? I know there's a kind of a push-pull in the marketplace between the folks that have just really relied on this tried-and-true Amazon, Apple's you know, big growth stories, and those that have really embraced that uh, rotation trade into more cyclical names, and which have, in fact, done very well for several quarters now. What kind of, where, where are you in that uh, discussion? Yeah, for much of the last year, we've been uh, pushing our portfolios towards cyclicals, towards value, towards small caps, and we're not changing. The market is today, as you mentioned, going to towards tech, and I think tech is the slower growth, non-cyclical um, growth uh, asset class right now. And so it has done well for the past couple of years, largely because we had a trade war, which knocked out cyclicality. If you think about what the trade war was designed to do, it was designed to knock out global growth, and it did so. If you do that in the economy, that translates to the markets. And so that knocked out value, that knocked out cyclicality, because tech was unimpacted. Then we had COVID hit, and COVID did the exact same thing, and in many cases was a tailwind to the tech story. As we continue to reopen, as the globe reopens, as cyclical growth continues to push higher, you will see value stocks, you will see small cap stocks, you will see cyclical stocks move higher. And I think the world is in such a hurry to end that trade, which gives me a lot of comfort. Um, I still think we have quite a room to run. And typically, if investors look back historically, those segments of the economy or those sectors of the market don't begin underperforming until the yield curve inverts or until the Fed starts aggressively raising policy, which we're not anywhere near yet. So you advise uh, or oversee retail investment strategy. And, and one of the things I often think about as a, a retail investor is I want to keep things fairly simple just because I can't be rebalancing all the time. I can't uh, look at the fees constantly. And um, frankly, I just don't have the time to do it. Uh, I guess that's why I'd hire someone like you. But what do you think about um, retail investors keeping it a little simpler? I mean, are there are there strategies that um, take a little bit more of the of the, uh, the the constant watching out of it? Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I guess I try to make it simple too. And so we do maintain a diversified portfolio, and then we tilt our portfolio in the directions that we think um, there's opportunities to add value above and beyond. And so I'm, I'm not suggesting it's, it's it's easy, but it's certainly not as difficult as pe- what people make it out to be. Uh, and certainly you can buy some ETFs and some mutual funds and, and get a long way towards what any professional institutional investor can do. And that's what we do here at Northwestern Mutual. All right. So one of the concerns, uh, Brent, in the equity markets is, you know, I feel a little frothy uh, and they have been for a while. And then you see, you know, the maybe exacerbated or highlighted by the meme stock frenzy that we saw several months ago. And then people might point to SPACs as another speculative uh, aspect of this market. How do, you, how do you kind of frame that up in your own analysis? Sure. And so I've compared this time period to 1999 a lot, and I think that gives people pause, but it shouldn't because other asset classes like the ones I'm mentioning did well post-1999. Um, things like small caps, value stocks, things that were out of favor. Um, I, I do think there is some froth in markets today. Uh, the Fed uh, actually brought that up yesterday, which actually had my inbox filled this morning. Uh, but I agree with the Fed. It's in things like SPACs and IPOs and mean stocks, maybe in some crypto areas, maybe in some technology companies with no earnings. 
Um, and those aren't areas that I'm recommending right now. We're pushing more towards the things that will do better and see earnings growth, given the economic environment that we see in the coming uh, quarters. Uh, and so that would be my point number one. Point number two is I know the Fed mentioned it and people are, are concerned, but the Fed isn't changing their stripes. Um, they're going to continue pushing monetary policy. Uh, and to me, their policy is actually causing some of this, uh, but they're not going to stop because they want to accomplish their economic goals. And their economic goals uh, involve not causing a market crash. And so the two are interlinked right now, but I would continue to advise investors to go to things that are a little bit, uh, I suppose, less sexy. I mean, I don't go on calls and never have anybody ask me about a bank stock. They're usually asking me about a technology stock. And so there are parts of the market that are still relatively um, well-valued, and those are the areas that we push towards. And I think that's where you need to be for the coming year or two. What are you telling your clients about crypto? I mean, I'm sure that your inbox is is pretty full with crypto questions, or or at least your you know, friends are asking you about it constantly just due to the FOMO, right? If they've, if they've missed out on this incredible rally. On the other hand, comparison to 1999 can get pretty scary. Yeah, I mean, cr- cryptocurrencies, I think we can all agree upon, have a huge element of speculation to them. And so, you know, whether that's good or bad is, is up to the, the individual investor to decide. Just know that there's high volatility uh, and they could be winners or they could be absolute losers. Uh, and there's 9,000 of them, I believe. And so which one's going to win and which one's going to lose? For me, as a, uh, an investment professional, um, I don't know how to value cryptocurrency. So it doesn't have earnings. It doesn't have cash flows. Uh, and so, therefore, it's hard to value. Now, I know there's, there's comparisons made to gold and things like that. But keep in mind, gold has a 100-year history and was a monetary instrument. The other thing that I'd say um, is that um, I don't know what moves them macroeconomically. And so we've run tons of observations and tried to figure out what do they move off of? Are they inflation hedges? Are they, do they move with money? That's an incredibly key point, I think, Brent. That's that's a huge point that we don't hear anyone bring up. I think that's a key takeaway because, you know, the the, the fact that there's no earnings and and no income, uh, you get that. But um, no one still can guess yet what's moving them. Right. And so, you know, there could be value here, but I I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I, I, I can't see everything perfectly by any means. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking to you on a Friday morning. I'd be doing something else. Um, but from when, I, when I don't know how to value something and when I don't know um, what moves it macroeconomically, I'm, I'm apt to stay away. That doesn't mean other investors shouldn't possibly, if they want to invest in it, just know that they could lose all their money or they could make a lot of money. That's just what a speculation is. And so that's where I think it's appropriate for people um, who want to do that. I think the price of uh, Dogecoin at a minimum shows people that there's quite a bit of speculation here. I mean, it's yeah. moving up and down, and it actually has a market cap bigger than Twitter, bigger than General Motors, bigger than Kraft Heinz. Um, and so, forward. you know, it's, it's, it's grown large. So, yeah. All right, Brent, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. As always, Brent Schutte, he's a chief investment strategist for Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's talk M&A here. You know, 2020 was a year unlike no other, but what we have right now is stock markets hitting all-time highs 
interest rates near all-time lows. That is usually a good recipe for M&A. Let's check in with Rob Brown. He's a managing director and CEO of North America for Lincoln International. Rob, thanks so much for joining us here. I'd love to just get the 30,000-foot view from you, an M&A guy, on what's going on in the M&A market these days. So the 30,000-foot view is it's the busiest M&A market of my lifetime, and I've been doing this for 30 years. And I think there's kind of three factors. Uh, one, and you alluded to it in your, in your comments a few minutes ago, the amount of money that has been raised uh, in private equity funds and venture capital funds and the amount of money sitting on corporate balance sheets uh, is at all-time highs. And the fundraising has been that way for years, and a lot of that's driven by interest rates being so low and people allocating more assets to classes like private equity. So we've had for a while... Uh, more capital that wants to be put to work than there are high-quality companies to buy. So that creates a hot market. What's, what's intensified that right now is that you had deals that should have gotten done last year that were COVID-impacted in the second quarter. Uh, performance was COVID-impacted, and, and people pulled them off the market. Those deals are springing back, particularly in areas like industrials. And then with the anticipated increase in capital gains taxes, you have sellers of businesses that in a normal gestation period might be selling something in 2022 or 2023 saying, you know what, if cap gains rates are going to go up you know, 50 to 100%, I'm going to sell it now. So you have this perfect storm that's creating unprecedented activity and unprecedented values of just a great market with lots of capital, but intensified that you've got deals you know, pulled in from uh, future years and deals that should have got done last year hitting the market now, which creates Rob, uh, really incredible activity. D- Rob, does it also create um, unprecedented prices? Because if you've got more capital uh, out there, too much capital for the amount of high-quality companies, then I guess you have to compete more, and you do that through raising your, your offer. You're, 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 you're exactly right. It's classic supply and demand, right? The, the, the demand to... to, to uh, buy high-quality businesses exceeds the supply, and as a result, um, you're seeing incredibly high values. And not just, you know, values in technology and healthcare and the, the secular growing industries have always been high, and now they're, they're kind of off the charts high. But even, you know, industrials and certain elements of consumer, particularly direct-to-consumer things and business services, all of those are, uh, are, are also trading at high values. So a good, a good portion of it is is exactly right. It, it is. And, and quite frankly, with all the stimulus coming into the economy, companies are performing well. So you have this capital imbalance, you have strong performance, and it's resulting in high activity and high values. All right, Rob, talk to us about the actually getting deals done. Guys like you, M&A bankers, investment bankers, they've been known to spend most of their weeks, most of their months, most of their years on a plane visiting clients. Yet, You've most you and your other bankers have been kind of stuck at home for the most part. Yet we're still seeing record volume of deals getting done. Is your business changed forever? Uh, that's the, that's a great question. What I can tell you is, I think all of us in the M and A ecosystem have were incredibly surprised at how quickly buyers and sellers adapted to a virtual environment. And that's starting to thaw, right? We're now starting to have more meetings with management teams in person when we're bringing buyers and sellers together. We're starting to meet with clients more in person. But for the last, you know, 14 months, 13 months, it was really incredible how quickly 
things went virtual, how comfortable buyers got doing most of their diligence off-site, how comfortable sellers got, you know, interacting with their ultimate buyers um, uh, virtually. In fact, we've had several companies in the last year, several deals in the last year, where the buyers and the sellers never met in person ever until the deals were closed. It's amazing, and I'm sure that to some extent, your your wives or your husbands or your kids are going to get used to that and say, like, <laughs> Dad, you don't need to travel this much anymore. This Is a, is it a permanent change to some extent? Is there some well, stickiness? Well, I, I, I think some of it is. You know, it's interesting. We're looking to bring all of our people back. And you know, we've, got 23, we've got 23 offices in 17 countries. We've got hundreds of employees around the globe. And we're starting to talk about reentry because you know, we value the cultural effect of being together and being in person, and our clients value it. But what's clear is we surveyed our employees, and they value that. They want to come back and be in person, but they want more flexibility. They don't want to be in person as much as they were. And I think employers are going to have to listen to that. I think there's going to be some sort of hybrid, and I think it's going to be unlikely that we go back to the yeah. level of travel and the level of in-person meetings that we had pre-pandemic. All right, Rob, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your update yeah, on really the great market. Red hot, as Rob said. He's never worked harder in his 30-year career. That's really fascinating. Rob Brown, Managing Director and CEO of North America for Lincoln International, getting an update on the M&A market. Now let's bring in Lauren Sauer. She is an associate professor at Johns Hopkins University of Emergency Medicine to talk a little bit about the vaccine rollout. We just got um, uh, what we call a red sticky headline (laughs) here, Lauren, which means it's bright red on your Bloomberg terminal and it stays there for a little while because it's very important. The WHO has approved emergency use of Sinopharm's COVID-19 vaccine. How much does this help? Um, I think any vaccine that is added helps. I think understanding the efficacy um, data that we have so far is really important for every vaccine that we bring on. Um, in the Sinopharm situation, I think looking at what's happening in the Seychelles, looking at a couple other places where we might be seeing vaccine breakthrough is going to be really important over the next few months. And then taking those data and understanding, do we need to add boosters? Do we need to get additional coverage for people who receive Sinopharm? Or is it, you know, equally as effective um, and we can continue to move forward with it? But any vaccine with, with, with efficacy is going to be a valuable tool in our toolkit right now. So it's interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm just thinking about the Mets and the Yankees. They are giving out shots to people that come to the game. And I think it's going to be the COVID one, I mean, the one shot J and J shot. And while that's great, I'm thinking, isn't the COVID, isn't that type of uh, supply better used in another market like India that really, really needs it? So I guess my question to you, Professor, is just how do we think about dealing with India and some of these other uh, uh, countries like Brazil and, and other parts of Latin America that are just desperate need. Um, it just seems like it's such a difficult problem. Yeah, absolutely. It is a difficult problem. And I think um, anything we can do to contribute to the global allocation of vaccines is is something that we should be considering, not just in the future once we're totally vaccinated, but right now in, in the immediate present. Sharing vaccines with the world is good practice. Um, it's, good pra- it's good safety for us as a nation and, a, and it is good diplomacy as well. But right now it's an important p- public health problem that we should be contributing to. I mean, I think Johnson Johnson has real utility in our own communities. We have a lot of people who um, we know are not 
able to easily get two doses of vaccine who may not have the capacity to come back for that follow-up visit. So anything we can do to get an effective vaccine into someone's arm is important here and abroad. Um, in India, in places where they're having um, these m massive outbreaks um, and these crushing caseloads, it's it's about getting the additional healthcare resources that they need right in this immediate present. So, um, you know, things like oxygen, things like additional bed capacity, um, maybe even personnel to support the response there is going to be what's important in saving lives right now. I think getting vaccine to India is crucial, um, making sure that we're vaccinating populations there while responding to this immediate disaster is going to be very, very important. But what their current needs are, are the ability to take care of their crushing health care volumes. So having said that, I wonder what your thought is on the IP debate right now. Um, the Biden administration has suggested that it could waive IP protections so that uh, more producers could get these vaccines out and ostensibly into arms. Uh, Angela Merkel here in Germany, on the other hand, has pushed back, pushed back against that, saying that the plan would create severe complications for the production of vaccines, especially if we have future pandemics, drug makers not want to, may not want to work as aggressively on, on, on developing them. How do you feel about this? Yeah, I have mixed feelings on the IP issue. I actually don't think that IP is the number one biggest barrier or even three, four or five of the biggest barriers. Um, the IP piece is a very specific part of um, the efficacy, you know, of getting these vaccines into arms. And um, I think a lot of the vaccines are new technologies. And so just turning off the IP protections is not going to mean that another vaccine maker or producer is going to be able to just quickly flip a switch and, and create these vaccines. I think the bigger issue is um, scaling up all the additional elements, looking for the people who, um, who can actually give the vaccines, making sure that we have the populations to receive the vaccines. So I think this is a little bit of a distracting conversation right now. I don't think I think it's an important conversation. But in the in sort of the emergency phase, I think the bigger piece is how can we actually scale up sh vaccine sharing and production in ways that um, don't require, you know, lengthy court battles or massive amounts of international diplomacy to get everyone on the same page. Um, we can make production facilities more readily available. We can use the Defense Production Act. Um, we can give the companies that are already making the vaccines the resources to scale up um, rather than just insisting that they share their, their IP and, and release their, their or relax their patents. And, and I think um, having that conversation in emergency can be really risky because it can, it can make companies hesitate to put IP forward in a time where we need it, you know, urgently. Lauren, in this country, what are we seeing in terms of vaccine hesitancy? I know that was a concern early on. What's the data actually shown you? I, I think um, I think we're we're still making progress. I, I think we've all seen, you know, va vaccine uptake slow down um, in the U.S. I think our our focus is really going to have to be to target these young, healthy people who don't necessarily feel like they need vaccine um, to go out and live their lives right now. And, and they are going to be at higher risk and they're also going to create additional risk for vulnerable populations. And so that hesitancy has to be addressed readily so that we can um, really create that path to herd immunity and to um, good vaccine coverage that we know will allow us a, a path out of the pandemic. 
I also think that um, when we're thinking about hesitancy, we also have to couple it with access. And I, I sort of feel like a broken record in this space, but if we reduce someone's hesitancy and convince them to get a vaccine, we have to make gosh darn sure that they have a direct path to that vaccine because if they have to then go looking for it, um, we might lose them again. And then that conversation door might be closed. All right, Lauren, thanks very much for joining us on this issue. Hopefully things are getting better, but obviously there are still um, hurdles which we have to overcome. Lauren Sauer is an associate professor of emergency medicine at the Johns Hopkins University. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, we have a great new vertical. Do we call it a vertical? Not always sure I'm using that word right, <laughs> but I think that's right. In any case, um, if you type NI Big Take on your Bloomberg terminal, um, we have a fantastic new sort of cross-platform big story um, that we're all following. Today, the Big Take is about Vancouver becoming, at least for now, the capital of anti-Asian hate crimes. It's it's a real problem. Joining us for that is Natalie Obiko Pearson. She's Bloomberg Vancouver Bureau Chief. Um, so how did this happen, Natalie? I mean, I, I wouldn't think of Canadians in this way. I guess, uh, you know, I, I don't actually know that many Canadians, but um, what's going on there that makes it so dangerous for Asians? Well, you're absolutely right. I think it's actually going to come as a shock to the city as well, because not only is this Canada, but this is the most liberal corner of Canada, supposedly the most progressive and multicultural. But what's really happening here is, um, you know, like many places, COVID was the trigger, but something had been going on for decades before that. There had been a resentment, a tension that was building in the city, uh, because few cities, I think, have been so visibly and dramatically transformed by Asian immigration as Vancouver has in recent decades. It went from being this sort of struggling industrial backwater into this sort of glittering cosmopolis of shiny condos and designer boutiques and supercars. And that has created uh, a a tension here. Um, I, I would say, you know, an an Asian traditionally perceived as like an immigrant underclass suddenly became perceived as these wealthy elites, like with like rancor inducing types of riches. And so I think when COVID came along, it sort of tipped, tapped into these underlying sentiments. And so that's why we've gotten this huge spike. Yeah. So Natalie, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, the first time I've, I, uh, visited Vancouver for business maybe 25 years ago. I was shocked to see uh, how many uh, Asians were in fact in the city and how well they seem assimilated. But was that just the the surface? And as you're suggesting, there are some some tensions underneath uh, that have always been there. 
And I think that's precisely it. I mean, visibly, it is it is an incredibly multicultural place. I mean, there are parts of the city, in, you know, where the ethnic Chinese uh, component is 54%. There's sort of this running joke that if you go south of the city to this place called Richmond, it's like going to Hong Kong without having to pay for the airfare. You know, you step off the train and there's Asian signs everywhere. It's sort of difficult to spot English on the store shop fronts. The food is incredible. Um, but I think, you know, that that that's sort of the good side of it. But the flip side was that it it really has changed the demographics in the city over just probably two to three decades. Um, And especially this sort of wealth that came in, um, it it drove up housing prices. It it sort of made the city unrecognizable to a lot of people. So what can be done about it? I mean, especially now that we are, uh, I guess, a silver lining of this pandemic certainly in the U.S., has been that we've shown a light on um, the the racism that exists, exists inherently, institutional racism. And I guess it's not really the pandemic as much as it has been the killing of George Floyd. Um, is that being mirrored in Canada as well? Is, is this incredible concern for social justice, grow, has it grown there as well? Yeah, I think, you know, this is actually, I think, a real cautionary tale, because I, I would say that, you know, Canadians are ve- like sort of social justice um, is very much front and center. And sort of Trudeau, when he was when when these reports were coming out of Vancouver last year, was like, this is not Canada, like, this is not who we are. And people will very publicly condemn it. But if you kind of look at what happens in the city, it's it. it it very much so um, the government policies help and and the media here helped stoke these sentiments and you realize how easy it is for certain narratives to take hold and to be fueled because of very very tricky issues like a housing affordability crisis which has so many things playing into it you know it has um, interest rates and it has uh, uh, supply issues and all the rest of it and when you don't have an easy answer it's very easy to sort of turn to a scapegoat, some, somebody, something that can explain what's happening. And I think that's precisely what happened here. And so there's probably going to be, I would say, a fair amount of soul searching. In fact, the Attorney General uh, just recently apologized for comments he had made in recent years in which he sort of helped create this um, uh, sentiment, this sort of anti-Chinese money sentiment and, and regrets sort of some of the things that he said. So, Natalie, was suggesting that the COVID may be, you know, one of the catalysts here. Was that a a byproduct of perhaps President Trump and his characterization of the the COVID, the the pandemic, the virus as as the China virus? Was that some uh, blowback there? Yeah, I I mean, I think... You know, on one hand, Canadians sort of looked at the U.S. under Trump aghast and, and yep. you know, set ourselves apart and said we would never call it the China virus. And yet I think there were reasons geographically where people thought that we might be particularly vulnerable to becoming an epicenter here, in part because, you know, the, the, the virus very early in 2020 was first spreading beyond China, and we have the most international flights to mainland China out of any airport in the Americas or Europe. So just, you know, not, not, a, not a racist thing, but just by a purely geographic thing, people people are wondering, is it going to be coming across and landing in Vancouver because of all of these flights? It hasn't been coming without it, us realizing it. Uh, it actually turned out later, if you looked at the epidemiological studies, that the variants that spread here didn't come from that route. It was coming from eastern uh, Canada and Europe and from Washington state. But that was sort of the sentiment. That's pretty amazing. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, considering the virus did originate in Wuhan, China, it does come from China. So the fact that it didn't spread there when you have so many flights is is pretty interesting. Um, nonetheless, the issue remains that uh, it, it could be one of those things that stoked more anti-Asian um, hate and, and more of the, the crime that's just even difficult to read about, frankly, in the story. Um, what kind of response have you gotten? I think this is actually going to come as a shock. Like, I don't think people, it's been reported that there are hate crime incidents here, but nobody's yet put it in perspective that we are actually the hate crime capital of the world. So I'm expecting the response later today when people wake up to read it. (laughs) That's right. All right, Natalie, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this story with us. Natalie Obiko Pearson, she's the Vancouver Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News, out with a fascinating story here today, Uh, a Bloomberg Big Take story entitled Vancouver becomes capital of anti-Asian hate crimes. Uh, You know, obviously that is a big issue uh, here in the United States. But again, as we see from uh, Natalie's reporting from Vancouver, Vancouver is a very, uh, has a very big Asian population, uh, uh, has for some time now, and they are starting to see uh, some significant rise in hate crimes there. So Natalie details that in her very well-reported story. We recommend you take a look at that on Bloomberg.com. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.